And I'm really happy that my first live stream interview here in the New Digs is with my friend, Jared Frederick. Jared, how are you tonight, my friend? Hello, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Uh, Jared Frederick has a lifelong passion for American history. Prior to his current position as an instructor of history at Penn State Altoona, Jared served as a park ranger at Gaysburg National Military Park and Harpers Ferry National Historical Park. He's the author of several books, including Dispatches of D-Day, A People's History of the Normandy Invasion, Hang Tough, The World War II Letters and Artifacts of Major Dick Winters, and Fierce Valor, The True Stories of Ronald Spears and His Band of Brothers, which we'll mainly be talking about this evening. He has appeared on C-SPAN, PBS, numerous National Park Service productions, and various online documentaries. In 2019, he acted as a guest host on Turner Classic Movies for the channel's 25th anniversary. He is also the host of the extremely popular YouTube channel, Real History, and that's R-E-E-L History. You all need to go check that out, especially if you're on YouTube right now. Go subscribe to Real History for that. Jared, uh, I usually start uh, my live streams off by asking my guests, when was that spark for history lit within you? There's there's a few different ways I could answer it. Um, the first historic site I ever visited was historic Jamestown when I was about four years old. Uh, I had an aunt who lived in the Williamsburg area uh, during my early years. And that was the first ever historic site uh, that I had the opportunity to explore in person. Now, I didn't have any context as to what it was. I thought it was Neverland. Um, <laughs> I was looking for mermaids and Captain Hook because that's what it looked like in, right. in my mind. Uh, but, you know, uh, things developed a little bit further. You know, I ordered a few uh, historical books from the, the book order form when I was in kindergarten and, you know, learned about Martin Luther King Jr. and George Washington and all that sort of good stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, but it really took off when I was about seven and I saw the movie Gettysburg. And I know that's the case for um, so many of us millennial age Civil War historians that, you know, uh, it was it was that movie and uh, how how frequently it, it aired on television uh, during the summers. And there, there was this this whole Civil War history zeitgeist in the early 1990s. You know, there was the Ken Burns series. There was uh, Glory, there was Gettysburg, there was Civil War Journal that was on A&E and the History Channel. There are all these uh, TNT TV movies uh, talking about the Civil War. It was everywhere. And never before or since, as far as my memory is concerned, uh, had Civil War history been so accessible and so prevalent in popular culture and in society. And in that regard, it was a great time to be a kid. <laughs> it was. Uh, thinking back on those days, uh, you know, we're talking mid-90s, really. Who were some of the historians you really liked seeing on Civil War Journal or on, you know, some of them were doing cameos and movies and stuff. Who were some of the ones that you enjoyed watching? I mean, the obvious one is Brian Pohanka, of course. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he just had this, uh, suave, zoov, debonair demeanor to him mm -hmm. that was irresistible, uh, as far as storytelling went. 
Uh, and so uh, I, he, I was really drawn to him as, as a storyteller. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, those were, those were great and insightful and informative times. Uh, and I, I wish the History Channel still aired shows like that. Yeah, yeah, we 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 discuss this all the time on Twitter, and it never happens. Uh, the when you decided to become a historian, when when did you really decide? Was it early? Like you're like, this is what I definitely want to do. Uh, and when did you figure out how to go about uh, becoming that? How'd you choose a school, etc.? By the time I was in fifth grade, I knew that I wanted to be a historian in some form or another. And uh, I, I remember a class superlatives in seventh grade where my classmates voted me the person most likely to be a historian. <laughs> uh, and so uh, it was not lost on anybody, uh, my, my young classmates uh, included. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I tiptoed into the history field. Uh, because I knew, as I said early on, it was something that I wanted to do. And you know, I really have my parents to thank in, in a, a very big way uh, because they they had so much patience and really nurtured uh, my fascination with the past and my ambition to kind of cultivate that professionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, uh, that culminated in my first book uh, when I was 16. And, uh, you know, it was certainly not a big tome or anything like that. It was a 40-page coloring book. Hmm. And how how that manifested itself, I was in eighth or ninth grade. Parents took me on one of many trips to Gettysburg. And I was looking, I was browsing the shelves eyeing, you know, what books were out there for young people on the Civil War. And I was just wholly unimpressed by what was out there. Mm-hmm. I turned to my mom and I thought, I really think I could do better than this. And she said, well, why don't you? Uh, and so I took her up on that challenge. And I, I did a 40-page coloring book in which I did the illustrations and I wrote little biographies of different Civil War commanders. Uh, and so that was really my dive into the history field mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, I, I was I was very outgoing even then in, in that regard uh, because, you know, I would email museums and gift shops and historic sites all over the United States. And I said, hey, you know, I'm in high school. I wrote this book. Would you like to buy any? Would you like to have me for a book signing? Uh, and, and so I would show up at these book signings, you know, at uh, places like uh, the Gettysburg Heritage Center. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and there would be, you know, Jeff Shara and there would be, you know, other very notable historical writers. And then there was 15, 16 year old me at the very end. <laughs> and I was a novelty um, because um, I was considerably younger than everybody who I was uh, sitting with. Right. Uh, and so uh, that um, that book uh, caught the eye of uh, historian Dennis Fry hmm. at Harper's Ferry National Historical Park. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, I, I really like your historical artwork. Uh, do you want to come volunteer at the park? 
and uh, we'll make you a sketch artist for Harper's Weekly. You can go around the park and draw stuff and do informal interpretation with people. Nice. And I thought, absolutely. Uh, and so by age 16, uh, I was uh, that was my first foray into living history, and it was with the National Park Service. And I that, that's where I really started to learn interpretation. Right? Okay, well, I wrote this stuff. I drew this stuff. How do I convey points of the past verbally mm-hmm. with people? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I learned so much at Harper's Ferry. And I have some of my, my fondest memories uh, of being a historian uh, there in my early days. And I also learned how you can draw people in at historic sites. Mm-hmm. It's one thing to be carrying a gun. It's one thing to be carrying a basket or a toolbox. Um, but when you open up a sketchbook or put up an easel and you start drawing, uh, people are just naturally inclined to come over and see what you're doing. Uh, and so I was able to use artwork as a vehicle for drawing people into conversations about the power of the press, the importance of newspapers during the Civil War, and everything that that conveyed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that that is my long answer to your short question of how I got started. That's awesome. That That's definitely one of the most unique stories we've had on here of how someone got started into the field, whether it's a public historian or an academic or both. Uh, that's, that's definitely a very unique one. And, and uh, to be published at that young age is, is awesome and, and different as well for, for many people to hear. Uh, how did that experience, even though you were so young, how did that experience of being published help you later when you published your first monograph, basically? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, my life has proceeded in a stepping stone sort of fashion uh, because my my coloring books led to my time at Harper's Ferry. And my volunteerism at Harper's Ferry is what led me to my student internship and later a job as a park ranger at Gettysburg National Military Park. Um, and so uh, things have been very synchronized uh, in that regard. Uh, but you know, in writing for children, in writing for young adults, I learned the importance of accessibility. Mm. And I think I think more historians should write children's books because it's a very humbling experience. Uh, because if you can write for children, you can write for anybody. This is true. Yeah. Uh, and and so. I, I never try to stray to, of course, I use bigger words and more complex thoughts um, than, than what I did 20 years ago. Uh, but, you know, it keeps me grounded in a sense, um, not, to, not to stray too far into academic jargon, to stay rooted, don't get ahead of myself, rhetorically speaking. Uh, and I think that's, that's an important part of my writing style. Do you think you learned that, excuse me, uh, thing of accessibility, that idea of accessibility? Because you were hoping for that accessibility when you were emailing all these places, you know, when you were young and you were waiting for those emails to come back. And 
that taught you maybe somewhere along the line that maybe if you didn't get one back, it was like, wow, it's kind of an inaccessible thing. And I don't want to be like that. Or, you know, because uh, I've emailed people like we, we would say cold called. I've cold emailed people before uh, for whatever the case may be. And that really ingrained in me about getting back to people in a timely manner. Is that uh, you think that seed was planted there where you wanted that accessibility because you remember being 15 years old and wanting that accessibility? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the, the, the very experience that you just mentioned um, instilled in me one of my uh, great frustrations in life, and that's people who don't get back to people. <laughs> um, yeah. So you're, you're right on the money uh, in that regard. Um, and it has, uh, reflecting back on that, it, it, it really makes me, you know, I tell my students, I said, if you send me an email, I am going to do my utmost to get back to you within 24 hours. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, to your point about emailing historians, uh, academics, those in the field, it's absolutely astounding uh, how many of them are so uh, willing to ignore uh, the inquiries, the questions, uh, even opportunities of free labor, volunteer, have my research, um, the things like it's just absolutely astounding. Even people in my own institution, um, you know, who work at a different campus, uh, you know, I, I can't always get in touch with. Um, and so I, I think the, the answer is, John, is that you and I are just highly functional people with courtesy um, and that more people should be like us. I think uh, that's the big <laughs> I think it's my ADD. I can open three or four email accounts at one time and, and figure it out from there. But I, I think I really came in handy when they said it was going to be a hindrance. It's actually an asset to be a historian and ADD is a great thing, you know, uh, especially when you're trying to run the operation like I try to run. Uh, Jared, uh, before we jump into the books, I do want to ask about your experience as an educator. Uh, the students that you're working with now compared to maybe how we were as students or uh, because of the accessibility, we're going back to accessibility again, of the information. It's in the palm of their hand now more so when, than when we were doing some things early on. Mm -hmm. uh, what is the experience like now in 2022, obviously COVID aside, uh, being an educator in, in, a, in a university level with with undergrads or even grad students who are really um, trying to figure out the historical narrative and the historiography in new and dynamic ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a few ways that I can answer that. And I'll start off with the basic one of the, the dramatic evolution in uh, students uh, that that I've seen personally just in the, the, the 10 years that, that I've been teaching. You know, um, when I started teaching, uh, a lot of my students had been in grade school or middle school when 9-11 happened. Uh, now, uh, my, most of my students were born around 2003 or 2004. There's absolutely no living memory right. of uh, this, this like historical moment burned in, in my consciousness. Um, and, you know, too, you know, there, there's a whole lot of other elements as well. Um, it's more of a challenge for students to write in-depth research papers than what it was uh, 10 years ago. Uh, and I, I think that accounts to a, a number of different things. Um, you know, 
the easy access to information does not always make a better student paper. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes if a student actually goes to the library and picks out the hard copy book, it turns out a much better product. I think the other thing, too, um, is that many college students today who attended public education are uh, fully a product of the No Child Left Behind system, which uh, diminished, uh, killed uh, the arts and humanities in public education. And it really hurt their abilities at, at critical thinking as a result. Mm -hmm. um, I am no fan of standardized tests. Um, and I, I think that uh, cutting music classes, art classes, history and social studies, so on and so forth, so we can afford students more time to test, to take the test, uh, is one of uh, the great sins of American education. Um, <laughs> that's my thought. Yeah. Um, and, and so in a way, my students come to me as clean slates. Uh, a lot of them have not had meaningful history classes in high school. Um, you know, I, we always joke because it always ends up being true. You know, half of them, you know, they had their football or track and field coach as their history teacher. Yep. Uh, which inevitably turns out into a, a resuscitation of just names and dates that they had to remember. Um, and so... For a lot of my students, the vast majority of whom are taking it as a general education class, I'm for all intents and purposes, perhaps the first historian that they've ever met. Hmm. And while there's something to uh, mourn about in that dynamic, there's also a lot to embrace. Mm -hmm. uh, because I have an opportunity to show them all of the flavors of history that they in all likelihood have never been exposed to. And uh, one of the greatest compliments I can get in my um, student ratings of teaching effectiveness uh, that I get at the, the end of every semester, um, those are uh, um, anonymous poll surveys that, that students take at the end of the semester. Um, there's nothing more rewarding than saying, or than, than reading about a student who said, I went into this class dreading it and I came out loving it. Mm. Uh, and so that that's really what it's all about in the long run. And it, it's my hope that I can not only make them good critical thinkers who can uh, source information and material in an age where it's so easy to be misinformed. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I always end all of my classes at the end of every semester with the same plea. And that plea is just be good to people. Uh, history is not kind to those who are not kind to others. And uh, that is sort of the gauntlet that I throw down in front of them uh, as I finish up class discussion. So uh, that's a little bit about my methodology and uh, some of the students who I have enter my classroom. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Uh, we w I want to dive into the newest book first, because that's what we're talking about tonight. Uh, the 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 uh, the title "Fierce Valor" uh, really is an eye-catching title for a lot of people, and obviously with uh, Spears uh, on the on the front cover and in full figure front cover is is a great looking cover. And thank you. Uh, what uh, what why Spears and why this story? Where did it all start? 
Um, I'll preface that by by mentioning uh, my previous book that I co-authored with Eric Dorr, uh, which is Hang Tough, uh, which uh, looks at the wartime correspondence of Easy Company commander Dick Winters, uh, who's, uh, of course, magnificently played by Damian Lewis in, in the HBO series. And, you know, uh, I never envisioned myself being a Band of Brothers author. Uh, that is not what I foresaw. It is not the direction that I wanted to go in. Uh, but ultimately, the the richness of the primary sources convinced me otherwise. Hmm. The With Hang Tough, um, it's not a, a typical biography. There's been plenty of books written about Dick Winters. Uh, but it, it largely consists of his wartime correspondence with a female pen pal who was in the United States Navy during World War II. And I thought, well, I've never heard of any of that. That's fascinating. Right. right. And additionally, too, with Hang Tough, um, I, I think one of the great merits of it is, you know, in the miniseries, you don't get the full interpretation of Dick Winters. You see him as his men saw him. You very rarely see how he actually saw himself, uh, with a brief exception in the Crossroads episode, where he encounters a young German face-to-face -face and kills him, and then has psychological fatigue from that. I think that's the truest moment in the series, but it's really, um, it, it had so much potential to, to go deeper and last throughout. Uh, and so... The letters showed Winters for not as he or as men remembered him, but for as who he was during the war itself. And so looking at Ronald Spears was in many ways kind of a natural sequel to all of that. Um, because uh, my co-author is the curator of the Gettysburg Museum of History in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, he has what is likely the, the largest easy company artifact and document collection uh, in the world. Um, and, and so there's a lot of great artifacts on display, but uh, there's also a lot of file boxes and file folders uh, that are just uh, absolutely filled to the brim with these uh, interesting insights that have uh, never seen the light of day, hmm. uh, including some of Ronald Spears's correspondence, letters, uh, ruminations uh, that his men wrote up about him, uh, you know, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, these became the foundation for Fierce Valor as, as a narrative. Mm. I was, that was one of my questions that I was going to ask was where did all the primary source come from? But I've, I kind of figured uh, Eric had a lot of it <laughs> over there at the, at the museum. Uh, when you were going through these primary sources, uh, you know, were you looking for those aha moments where it was a, going to be something a little bit different than what we saw in uh, the miniseries so long ago? It's been almost, what, 20 years now, probably. Uh, or, were you, or were you trying to just figure out the man himself and, and write that down? I would say it was a little bit of both. Okay. Uh, we were looking to either confirm or dispel some of the myths about him, um, or at the very least, 
bring conflicting accounts into conversation with one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's what I hope we, we achieve because I think it's, uh, it's a much uh, richer tapestry uh, that way. When you can say, oh, well, look what he said. Well, look what he said afterward. Ah, but this guy was here at the moment um, and he was actually there. You know, it's not hindsight uh, that he was ruminating about. Right. Uh, and so um, it's, it's a fascinating conversation, I think, in historical memory. Mm. And uh, I was able to really embrace that, uh, particularly in the final chapter of the book, mm. as Spears was rather uncomfortably coming to terms with this unwanted celebrity in the last 15 or so years of his life. Uh, and so uh, we were able to confirm uh, some of those myths that, that viewers may be uh, familiar with, but uh, we also were able to convey, I think, a more nuanced interpretation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, he was capable of being both a good man, a rock-solid commander who was paternalistic and looked after his men, and he was also capable of being a cold-blooded killer uh, if the situation warranted it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, it, it's not necessarily a black and white biography. You know, um, I don't sit in judgment of him. I, we were very careful um, not to be like, oh, this guy should have been thrown in prison or, you know, should have been, you know, tried on war crimes because a lot of Americans would have been <laughs> tried on war crimes trials if the United States had lost. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but at the same time, too, it's not hagiography hey, either. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if his men were critical of him or if they had harsh things to say or they had bad memories of him, we talked about those too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like all history needs to be, you need to take the the good, the bad, and the ugly and see everything for the sum of their parts. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was Ronald Spears, the man outside of being the soldier? What was, what was he like? Um, Spears was born... April 20th, 1920. He was born on uh, Hitler's birthday, no less, uh, which uh, he, he later noted with a degree of irony. <laughs> and uh, he was actually born in Scotland. A lot of people don't realize that, but he was actually an immigrant soldier. Wow. Uh, and his father had been in the armaments industry in England and Scotland during World War One. And in 1920s Great Britain, when an economic recession occurred, his dad moved to the United States, uh, set up shop in the Boston area, saved up enough money, bought a house, and then paid for his family to come over and join him. And so Spears was the youngest of five children. Uh, he had uh, the, the next one up in the pecking order was his brother, Bert, um, who served as a fighter pilot in the South Pacific during World War II. Um, and so both of them became lieutenant colonels by the time they retired. Uh, that's something that their, their family is, is very proud of. Uh, but, you know, it, looking at his high school yearbook photo, uh, looking at the picture of four-year-old him when he arrived in the United States, there's an actual photo of the Spears family arriving uh, on the piers of Boston at Christmas in 1924. Um, you know, looking at, you know, this hard-nosed soldier, seeing him in, you know, knickers and a little plaid jacket as a four-year-old, 
uh, gives you a moment of pause and like, oh yeah, like, yeah, I mean, he was a kid, uh, you know, he was <laughs> all other four-year-olds, you know? Right. Um, and so always kind of removing that veneer a little bit, that, that popular culture veneer and uh, looking back at people's roots and the, the circumstances and the people and the family members that made them uh, is so crucial when doing any sort of biography like this. Hmm. I, I found that a lot when I worked in the archives, Jared, where I'd be going through documents of generals and such in the Second World War and even the, and even the Civil War. And what we think of them in the popular history standpoint, like if we watched Band of Brothers or if we watched uh, you know, Countdown to D-Day or something like that, and we see these larger than life personalities and then we see their letters, it's almost like, uh, you know, a, a little slap saying, hey, these are real people who are, they, they didn't start here. <laughs> you know, they, they came up to this point. And just to picture, you know, Spears on the docks of Boston in 1924 is just a really cool visual to think about. And it's so different than what's on the cover and showcasing what he became. Yeah. And, you know, the other thing too that may be surprising to people uh, is the fact that he was drafted. Uh, into military service, you know, like, he's like, you know, this gung ho guy, you know, like, you know, running at the Nazis. Um, he did not enlist of his uh, of his own volition, um, which uh, was the case for like seventy percent of Americans who served in in World War Two. Uh, mm -hmm. And so, uh, you know, as you know, we're at the moment where we sit now, you know, ninety nine percent of the World War Two generation is gone. And, you know, I think there's going to be a real historical reckoning here in the next 20 or 30 years in the same way that historians began to reanalyze the Civil War in the 1960s and onward. Mm -hmm. uh, as, as this generation is fading into memory, um, there's going to be, you know, the lenses are going to be shifting here. And I think some of the rose tinted glasses um, are going to be uh, fading to an extent. Um, you know, and, and this is not to say that uh, the World War II generation does not deserve our admiration, but what it does do uh, is that it reminds us that they were a flawed generation as well as a great generation. You know, nobody's perfect. Um, and I've never been too keen on the greatest generation phrase because it implies perfection. Mm -hmm. And perfect they were not. Mm -hmm. um, and so... That is, I think, is such a crucial element uh, to to take into account, and you know that's something that I hope Fierce Valor contributes to, uh, because it shows that you know this guy he could be a confident, capable, commanding officer, um, but he was not without his personal baggage either. None of us are. Did he? ever catch flack from any of the guys for being a draftee or was that just kind of like uh, oh well he's here and that's not that i was able to find will find yeah because i've heard about that from other people uh during later conflicts like the korean war i've heard people say well he's you know he volunteered why would you do that you know when everyone else was kind of drafted in you know mm -hmm. so that's kind of an interesting thing i didn't know if he had experienced any of that but what was his style of leadership like with his men and how did the men react to that mm -hmm. um the, the best word that i can use is stoical 
I, I think uh, we, we quote Henry V uh, at the beginning of our book, and uh, the quote is, is that quiet men are the best men. Hmm. And that was very much an attitude that Spears embraced. He recognized a certain power behind the mystery of his personality. And uh, this is what leads to so many of the tall tales and legends surrounding his exploits. Mm -hmm. uh, he did nothing to dispel the stories of him killing prisoners or one of his own men. Uh, in fact, he secretly relished them um, because he realized that nobody is going to give me any lip or, you know, fight back or not do what I tell them to do because they will think that I will kill them. Right. <laughs> uh, and so uh, he used his quiet, reserved nature, like kind of this silent intensity in order to get the job done. Mm. That served him very well as a commander. It did not serve him as well in regard to historical memory. Because uh, a lot of men thought like, oh, yeah, well, Spears, you know, like, you know, he did a fine job. That guy was an insane, cold-blooded killer. I didn't want to have anything to do with him. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, you know, it, it leads to this just really fascinating conversation um, about how people remembered him, how Spears remembered himself, and uh, kind of this inner psychology uh, that was ongoing. Did you find that as well in a different way, obviously, with, with Dick Winters? Because he seemed like a stoic kind of person, soft-spoken and that, but he was still a, a great uh, leader of men. But he still had that kind of like stoicism to him in a way. Did you find that kind of with him as well when you did uh, your work with him or on, on him? You know, um, the I think the best way I can differentiate the two is that winners had a more paternalistic attitude. Hmm. You know, Spears would walk up to somebody and he would say, okay, do this and do it now. And uh, Winters, by contrast, he was more willing to be conversational uh, with enlisted men. Um, even though that that's something that he said in kind of his uh, professional bullet points is that you had to keep enlisted men and officers separated. He constantly broke his own roles um, in that regard. He, he, he was very much this sort of big, big brother persona. Uh -huh. um, and, you know, he he saw Easy Company as his children. Mm. Yeah. Spears saw Easy Company as his subordinates. Okay, that makes sense. I think that's the best way that that I can differentiate the two. Um, they were both stoical. They were both somewhat quiet and reserved, but to to different extents, if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That that makes total sense. It's kind of funny you bring up the fact that Winners is more paternalistic in that, seeing them as his children. Uh, in that way, because I actually, the only time I ever met Dick Winters was I was at the 100th anniversary of Hershey, Pennsylvania, and got to march in a parade. And 
we saw some of the school students march by like the ROTC kids and all this other stuff. And then we went and we did our thing. We were walking back after we were done and here's the ROTC kids from the high school. And this old guy is telling them, okay, you need to move like this. When that happens, you need to move like that. And we actually went up to him and we're like, yeah, you, you tell him, sir, how it's done or something like that. You know, we were cheering him on for doing that. And we had no idea it was Dick Winters. Oh, wow. And it was one of those things where Band of Brothers came out the next year. And I'm like, that's mm. the guy from Hershey that that was there. So he still had this kind of like, yeah. he's going to help the kids out. That's a great story. The same way, which is kind of a, an interesting thing that you brought up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and the other big point of departure between the two of them um, is the extent or lack thereof to which they wanted to remain connected to their pasts. Hmm. When Spears retired from the military officially in 1964, um, records suggest he was doing some clandestine stuff after that. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Um, but when he retired, he burned his uniforms. Wow. Uh, and it, his uniforms, I think much like his uh, demeanor was, was burned out. You know, I, I think he, he had had his fill. He wanted to put his military service behind him. And, you know, he, he was one who never wanted to do interviews or be part of books or movies or anything like that. By contrast, uh, Winters was a consummate unit historian. Yeah. That's why the book and miniseries exist in the first place is because um, Winters was so thorough, a record keeper. He, he had a, a, an ongoing roster of easy company men until his dying day. Uh, you know, he would have their addresses, their phone numbers. Whenever they wrote him a letter, he would make a photocopy. And then he would write them a letter and make a photocopy of the letter that he sent them. Wow. And whenever he found an article or whenever somebody wrote something, he would make a copy and put it in that soldier's personnel file. It's like he was still their commander. Yeah. Um, you know, still keeping uh, track of their records. Um, and so he had, you know, two or three file cabinets in his home office in Hershey, Pennsylvania, just full of stuff like that. And as Winters was uh, going around the, the lecture circuit in the 1980s, that's how he met Stephen Ambrose. And, you know, there was essentially this ready-made book uh, that, that Stephen Ambrose um, could have full access to. And uh, Winters happily handed over all that stuff uh, to Ambrose because you know, he, Winters was not doing it out of any sort of uh, mercenary ambition or anything like that. He wanted the story of his men to be told. And he saw a gifted historical writer in Stephen Ambrose. And he saw Ambrose as the vehicle for making that unit story well known to the masses. And the rest, they say, is history. Mm -hmm. How uh, you as a historian, you have to we have to separate ourselves from what we see in popular culture and popular history when we're doing these kinds of works, right? Was that a difficult thing for you to do? Because these miniseries have been so ingrained in our minds for 
a decade or more. Was that kind of a hard thing to do from time to time, or or did you find it to be pretty? Uh, a pretty gentle process. It was at times an immensely difficult thing to separate the two. Um, because, you know, when you picture Spears, you know, running through the Ardennes, you know, I'm like, okay, don't think of Matthew Settle. Don't think of Matthew Settle. Don't think of the actor who plays him. Think of him. Think of the real man. Mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, it, it certainly requires a, a bit of separation uh, from the popular culture element. Um, but, you know, once again, the, the best way to do that is, you know, if you go back to the, the primary source, uh, that's kind of the best way to erase at least a little bit of that popular culture imprint. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I when I started reading Dick Winter's letters, uh, it really for the first time ever, when I thought about Winters, I was able to think about the actual man rather than Damian Lewis. Right. I, that, that, that was that was the big, um, you know, aha moment as, as I was uh, co-writing Hang Tough. Uh, and so, you know, it it, it indeed it, it is a, a challenge for any writer. It, it's the same if you're writing about Omaha Beach or if you're writing about Pickett's Charge or uh, or the sinking of the Titanic. Um, it's impossible not to visualize the movies depicting those events. But, hey, you know, we got to try. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. Uh, for everyone who's joining us uh, on Facebook and YouTube, I have placed a link in there for uh, Fierce Valor in the in the chat. Sorry, Twitter. I can't put anything in, in a chat. You're, you're still out. You have to contact Twitter about that. Uh, but that's a link to Amazon to buy the book uh, and to purchase any of other Jared's books. Jared, I want to touch on Dispatches of D-Day as well because uh we got a theme going on here with with a lot of normandy stuff going on uh your previous book dispatch from d-day uh where did that idea come from and where did you source some of your stuff from mm -hmm. i first started thinking about a d-day book in 2017 uh, you know, I'd done a number of kids books. I'd done some local history books. Um, and I was really kind of wanting to move up to the next level in regard to my historical scholarship and outreach. Uh, and so uh, the first thing I did is I found a literary agent, the uh, same literary agent I have today. Uh, and he kind of steered me in the right direction, you know, because, you know, we had to tiptoe very carefully just because D-Day has been so heavily explored and written about in so, so many ways. And he said, if you can find an angle that has never been written about, this is a book that has potential. Hmm. And, uh, and so what I did, as um, I had found with some of my local history books, I, I discovered the power of digitized newspapers. And I thought, this is a completely untapped resource in historical scholarship of the Second World War. Nobody is using this stuff uh, to like paint a picture of a specific moment. You know, everybody goes and looks at official records and after action reports and things like that at the National Archives and they go to presidential libraries and you know look up the papers of generals. Um, but I went a completely different direction. And the beautiful thing was I didn't have to leave my house to do any of the research. <laughs> Uh, which saved a lot of time and money. Right. Um, but what I did is I 
over the course of a year, I went through 150 different American newspapers, uh, tried like 50 different keyword variations on ways to find stories pertaining to either the preparation, the execution, or the aftermath of the Normandy invasion. And then I found uh, what I thought were the best and most revealing stories covering a wide variety of topics. And I ended up transcribing 300,000 words in newspaper reports about the Normandy invasion. Hmm. And then I picked the best of those, uh, peeled some of them back, and uh, started to stitch them all together in a narrative format. Uh, and so it's, uh, it's a D-Day book that I'm proud to say is unlike any other uh, that's ever been written because these are fresh firsthand accounts written in the moment, the vast majority of which are written by people that we've never heard of. Uh, and these are stories that have not seen the light of day since 1944. Uh, and that was exactly what I was going for. Uh, and so uh, it's, it's, a, it's the essence of bottom-up history, uh, as we say. Uh, and uh, it, it's just this fascinating snapshot of the American mindset, uh, both at home and overseas, as uh, the Normandy invasion was ongoing. It is uh, definitely a unique look at it because, you know, I, I read it, obviously, and it's it's here in a box somewhere still. <laughs> I'm not unpacked yet. Uh, but I read it and I thoroughly enjoyed it because I've read, like you have, so much on D-Day. And, and Normandy campaigns and, and uh, GIs and all kinds of stuff. And it was so great to read something that was uh, a curveball for a lot of us. We're like, wow, I never read something like this. It's not, you know, people will think they'll, they might see D-Day and they're like, well, I've read something on this. But you can't judge a book by its cover <laughs> with anything. And it's one of those things where it's like, wow, the primary sources in there were, were awesome. And it was great they were digitized because that, I'm sure, as you said, made your life so much easier, uh, you know. It, if uh, if somebody had tried to write the book 20 years ago, it wouldn't have been possible. Um, oh, yeah. yeah, really, um, because you would have had to go on to, you know, some newspaper archive in every state of the union. Mm. And uh, even then you would have been, you know, just, uh, you know, shooting in the dark, mm -hmm. you know, going through microfish or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so yeah, you know, uh, the... These various online databases are wonderful, wonderful things for uh, us as researchers, and they're they're constantly being updated. Mm -hmm. It's only going to make our life a little more easy every year, incrementally. Mm -hmm. It's going to get easier to research every single year, and I'm looking forward to seeing what comes out of that. Uh, Barbara Schultz asked uh, a question here. Uh, if Spears watched Banner Brothers, and what do you think? I wanted to ask that about winners, too. Yeah, uh, that's a great question. Um, I'll answer Winters first, and then we'll we'll get into Spears. Right. Uh, Winters, you know, he had very high expectations to begin with, uh, and uh, Spears or um, Tom Hanks kind of had to bring him back down to earth um, a little bit, and what was reality and what was feasible. And uh, Tom Hanks said to Winters, uh, he said, uh, Major. If we get 12% of this right, people are going to think we're geniuses. I mean, so we're going to aim for 17%, and we're really going to wow people as a result. 
And winners really appreciated that sort of candid attitude, uh, you know, of like what was reality, you know, what, what was, what was, uh, you know, accessible. Right. Um, and so, you know, by and large winners was pleased, you know, with it. Um, it was certainly he, he comes looking off very good um, in, in the series for sure. Um, you know, that, that was not his motive. Uh, you know, he wanted the story of his men to be told. And of course it succeeds in flying colors, you know, like the most famous American unit of the second world war. So yeah. um, mission accomplished major winners. Um, uh, in regard to, uh, Spears, um, Spears had a very different reaction, uh, to the series. Uh, Spears was the only veteran of easy company who demanded to see the script before any of it was filmed. Wow. Um, because he was, uh, he was concerned about how he was going to be portrayed. Uh, and so, um, he wasn't all too thrilled with how he was written up. Uh, there had already been some friction between he and Stephen Ambrose. Uh, Spears thought that uh, Ambrose did a disservice to his former wife and how she was written about um, in the book. And that really burned a bridge, a big bridge uh, between the two of them. Um, but, you know, I, I can't say for certain whether uh, Spears watched the series in its entirety, um, but I know that he watched uh, about a, a 90 minute or two hour excerpt of it uh, for the 2000, June 2001 reunion uh, that he attended, um, which was hosted by HBO. Uh, there was a big 1000 person tent that they popped up at the edge of Utah Beach. And they had a gala dinner and then they watched the series. Um, and so, uh, but it's very telling in this moment because um, Spears and Winters sat beside each other when they watched that. Hmm. Uh, this, this had, that day was the first time since 1945 that the two men had seen each other in person. They had talked on the phone, they had written, um, but, you know, over half a century had passed. Uh, since they had actually seen one another. Um, and so it brought this big moment of closure for Winters, you know, because he had always been trying to get Spears back in the fold, try to get him to come to reunions, and Spears just wouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Spears may not have been pleased with the, the series or the book or how he was portrayed. He didn't want to be in the spotlight. Um, in fact, he thought neo-Nazis were going to come after him. Um, for revenge for what he did to Germans. Uh, that's something he articulates in his letters to winners. Um, but at the very least, uh, the the series brought these two men back together, which was one of the things that Dick Winters wanted most. Mm. That's an amazing story. I, I never heard that about them sitting next to each other. There. There's a, a photo of it in the book. That's awesome. Uh, there's a great visual uh, supplement to go with that story. That's awesome. And if you all want to copy the book, remember links in the chat, Facebook and YouTube, please go check that out. Jared, what's next for you? Do you have anything in mind? Uh, well, I have kept a, a notebook of book ideas since I was in high school and there's like over a hundred in it now. Um, I'm not entirely sure what is next um, as far as books go. Um, but my next writing project is my dissertation. 
Because I'm, I'm currently working on my PhD in American studies through Penn State Harrisburg. Great program. And uh, the dissertation topic uh, is the World War II history of Gettysburg. Nice. Uh, and so uh, it, it fuses my two main areas of interest together, uh, right. two subjects that mean a lot to me, Gettysburg and the Second World War. And uh, I'm going to be marrying those two things together. And uh, boy, oh boy, there will be some surprising eye-opening stuff that people would not have thought of. <laughs> oh, um, I bet. And hopefully that will become a book someday, too. I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. John McFarlane's in here, as he always is. Uh, wins the movie script. See, he's, he's already putting you forward. He's, he's letting you know. Um, I, I, I would love <laughs> to uh, have one of my works adapted into a, a film someday. Uh, one or two people said that Fierce Valor uh, would, hmm. would make a good film, or at least a portion of it. Um, hmm. And, you know, I, I, I thought about it. And, you know, uh, an area of, of the book which is covered quite extensively, which Spears is omitted in the series, is uh, the fighting around Carentan, in which he gets into a really, really fierce firefight um, with Germans during the Battle of Bloody Gulch, uh, which uh, I think would make a fascinating film uh, that would uh, fill a gap to an extent in the, the band of brothers canon perhaps. So uh, that just may be a pipe dream on my part, but uh, if, if a film was to be made about Spears, I think just taking that one chapter would probably suffice. Wow. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, Jared, thank you so much for, for being on tonight. Everyone, as I said, and I'll say it one more time, the link is in the chat to go get your copy of fierce valor. Uh, the true story of Ronald Spears and his band of brothers. We really appreciate everyone tuning in tonight. Jared, thank you so much for being here, my friend. I'm so glad that you reached out and wanted to do this. Uh, I never thought I'd do a band of brothers thing, but I'm so glad I did with you here this evening. Thank you so much. It's been uh, a lot of fun and I look forward to uh, the next time we can hike the fields of Gettysburg together, my friend. Yeah, we'll have to go and talk about World War II history now. <laughs> we can We can do that. It's forthcoming, trust me. I, I hope so. Uh, everyone, please uh, take care of yourself. Be safe. Go check out Jared's book. And I, when you go from there, you can also see the rest of Jared's work that he has on the site. Go buy them all. Just get the whole thing. Get the get the trilogy going on. And if you have a copy of that coloring book, I want you to tell me in chat because I don't even have a copy of that. You can get maybe we can get Jared to sign a copy. Uh, <laughs> but everyone, please take care of yourself. Be good. Keep reading, and we will chat with all of you very soon. Take care, everyone. Hang tough. <laughs>